Good afternoon, everybody. A very warm welcome to you all. Um, actually, a good morning or even a, a good evening uh, to some of our audience members uh, tuning in from different parts of the world. Um, thank you for joining us today uh, for the virtual book launch of Pejman Abdul Mohammadi and Gianpiero Kama's latest book, Contemporary Domestic and Foreign Policies of Iran. My name is Bonchi Tasmini, and I'm visiting fellow at the Middle East Center at the LSE, and I'm delighted to chair this discussion of a very timely book, given the chain of events which have impacted Iran on so many different levels. So let's get started with some basic housekeeping points. The running order of the proceedings will be between 15 and 20 minutes for our speaker, leaving time afterwards for the Q&A. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, um, there is a function. Please, at the bottom of your screen, uh, note the Q&A box and type in your question. I will then address them to our speaker. Um, I'll try to get in as many questions as I can, so I'll keep my comments to a minimum. Please note that the, the event will be recorded and we actually are streaming live on Facebook. So I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Pejman Abdul Mohammadi, who is a senior assistant professor in Middle Eastern Studies at the School of International Studies at the University of Trento in Italy. He was a resident research fellow at the London School of Economics from 2015 to 2018. His co-author, Gianpiero Cama, is a full professor of comparative politics and international relations in the Department of Political Science at the University of Genova in Italy. Um, please note that Pejman will be leading the talk. So without keeping you waiting any longer, I'll give the uh, virtual floor, I guess, to our speaker, Pejman. So first of all, thank you very much, Poncho, for the nice presentation. And also I thank Nadine for organizing this and particularly my special thanks to the Middle East Center to the director to uh, Robert Love and all the staff that I'm very uh, I said affected to them and uh, I mean after three years being there as a, a fellow now is a great great pleasure to be back of course it's a bit virtual so basically uh, and I apologize because um, they're with me some echo maybe with my voice because I just came to Genova uh, to make the uh, presentation together with the co-author Professor Kama but unfortunately I came here and that's why you see this magnificent building where I am but unfortunately uh, Professor Kama this morning had a problem in the hospital with the wife and he really apologized because there was an emergency so I came here but he's not able to come and unfortunately I mean everything is good it's not something bad but he's not able to join us because he should assist the wife so uh, he's sorry about that but I will keep going and it's a great pleasure uh, to present this our uh, new book and uh, I will just try to be brief like this we have more time for the Q&A so I try to highlight at least uh, on three more important points of the book and uh, afterwards I open the floor and uh, we could we could have a like a Q&A and a sort of exchanging the opinion and discussion so as you have noticed from the from the book this book uh, has been a, a result of a collaboration of Middle Eastern studies history of Middle Eastern studies which is coming from my side on of course with a focus on Iranian studies and on the other hand uh, we have the help and the support of the co-author, Professor Kama, who is a political 
scientist. So he helped me very much in this book by bringing the theoretical framework. So it has been a sort of real collaboration between the two disciplines, a sort of multidisciplinary result. And the, the first point which came out, which is uh, for us very important and interesting, has been focusing on the theoretical framework of Huntington on the theory of the modernization. And uh, the, the first chapter is basically focused on 100 years of history of Iran from the constitutional revolution until the uh, 1979 revolution and of course also uh, the starting of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So we try in that chapter to, to put, uh, let's say, in light that how Iran has been somehow, at least in the last 100 years, a very strategic country, it has been always been, but particularly in the last 100 years, and we have seen a sort of swinging between the forces of modernization and forces of tradition. And this, uh, let's say, contrast, opposition between these two forces has been repeating in different times, from the Mashrute, the Constitutional Revolution of 1906, until the rise of Reza Shah Pahlavi, then with all the reign of Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi from 1941 until 1979, and of also, of course, during the revolutionary time of 1979 and the rise of the Islamic Republic, particularly under the leadership of the Islamic Shia clergy and particularly Ayatollah Khomeini. So basically we try to, to show how uh, there are forces of modernization and forces of tradition that they do contrast each other. And also now, and I will try to focus on that in a bit, also the today's Iran civil society, today's Iran social movements, again are showing new generations, youth, who are again with the forces of modernization, are challenging uh, the elite in the power, the Islamic Republic, uh, seeing them as a force of tradition and uh, that they want somehow to critique and to challenge. So basically this 100 years of history uh, has been very much interesting and challenging, but I'm I would be happy then to speak and to discuss about that. The second point uh, which this book highlights and is, uh, in my idea, very important is the uh, theoretical framework of the Islamic Republic as a peculiar hybrid regime. It means that we started to work. Actually, we started with Professor Kama already from 2015 by one article on the British Journal of the Middle Eastern Studies, exactly the time that it was at LSE, to bring the idea that according to our theory, the Islamic Republic is a, a hybrid regime and is a peculiar hybrid regime. So we try to focus that how uh, the forces, the, is, the Islamic part and the Republican part, they created a sort of cohabitation between them. And how the Islamic Republic of Iran somehow is, uh, since the beginning, tried not to be a fully authoritarian regime. At, this, at the other hand, of course, is not a democratic system, but it tried to be exactly an Islamic Republic. So to bring, for example, the presidential elections, the parliamentary elections, which are open, of course, the competitiveness is limited by the Council of Guardian. So uh, there is a sort of filter and censorship in the beginning, but afterwards, once the presidential candidate, for example, they do uh, get pre-selected by the Council of Guardian, Afterwards, we see that the Iranian uh, 
voters within the Islamic Republic, they go to vote and they participate. Of course, there is a, ma a very, there has been, particularly in the presidential election, very high level of participation, but this participation normally is not so much guaranteed by fully competition. You know, Robert Dahl, an important political scientist who speaks about, of course, we could all participate, but if there is not free competition, of course, it's not a democratic system. So in the Islamic Republic somehow created, a, at least in the presidential election, a sort of para-democratic system. What does it mean? It means, yes, uh, everybody could be participating to run to become president. Uh, not everybody, because a part of the constitution say not the women, even though there is a challenge on that. However, the male, they could participate. But then the Council of Guardian, which represents the Islamicness, the Islamic part of the Republic, will, will contain and will filter the candidates. So then, uh, of course, the candidates, for example, the last elections, Rouhani against Raisi, or before the famous 2009 election, which brought to the Green Movement uh, the Musavi against uh, Ahmadinejad at that time, of course, they were already candidates who were selected by the Islamic part of the Republic. So they were already uh, belonging to the system. So this is, there is no doubt. And this is already one important point that this is not a democracy. But what we say is that once that they go beyond this filter, these candidates, afterwards, you really see a competition within the system. So uh, the youth, they come out, we have seen they make electoral, electoral campaign, they try to persuade uh, the people to vote for one candidate or to other. Normally, we have three uh, fronts inside of the Islamic Republic, which are reformists, pragmatists, and conservatives. So they try to attract you know, the voters to vote for one and the other. And particularly since 2009, we have seen, for example, that uh, also the TV debate became very important. So we have seen this famous TV debate between Musavi, former presidential candidate in 2009 campaign, and Ahmadinejad, that they were really saying to each other many things corrupt. One was saying, accusing the other who is corrupted. The other was saying, you know, very American way uh, of presidential campaign. And we have seen that also in 2013 election, also in 2017, the last presidential election, even though they were a bit different, they tried not to make one-to-one -one because, uh, 2009 being one candidate against the other candidate it created a sort of a challenge and it polarized more the society so they tried to put all the candidates which were i think the last election nine and they were you know challenging themselves but in a less uh, let's say um, a challenging situation so what happened is that anyway you have a sort of moment within the islamic republic that the people are involved but be careful, people are involved between the candidates who are already pre-selected. So this is one of the part of the hybridity. Because yes, you go to vote, many millions go to vote, so they do a democratic action going to vote, but of course they vote a system which is an oligarchy and is controlled. So this is one of the part that is the republic that we have been working on that, but it's not the only one. For example, the new president, if he is a reformist or he is pragmatist or he is a conservative, what will happen? They change their policies, for example, on the foreign policy, 
on the economy, political economy, uh, they have an important flexibility. If you have the Ahmadinejad, he make a a more populistic or uh, let's say socialist idea of the policy but then you have a Rouhani who is more pragmatist and he will do more let's say privatization uh, trying to be less uh, populist and, 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 and the political economy which is basing more on the uh, individual system than the collective one. So uh, on the foreign policy you see for example Ahmadinejad's time, who is in the foreign policy open to Venezuela and like that and like that, or very much against Israel. And then you see, for example, by arriving on Rouhani, at least Rouhani 1, not the Rouhani 2, uh, that he tries to open to the West, he tries to open to the Europe. I mean, the presidents, they have a sort of flexibility. Of course, this is very important to underline, that this flexibility is within a very strong and authoritarian structure, which is based on the Islamic ideology. So they, and this is based on the Islamic part of the Islamic Republic, the Supreme Guide, the Council of Guardian, the Judiciary Power, and of course the Pastoran too. So what they do, of course they do control completely that part of the Republican spirit, so-called Republican spirit. So what will happen on the so-called normative part, part of the system, you don't have flexibility. For example, look at the question of ideology. Uh, one example is the whale of the women, no? So you don't have the possibility. They are very strict on that. They don't give the freedom to the women to choose rather whether to put or not to put the whale, no? You have seen it's a debate now for many years, but Islamic Republic is not at all flexible on that. So on the so-called part of the polities, they are very strict. But the system might be flexible also in a important part from Venezuela to Washington, when is on the foreign policy and the political economy, for example. This is another part which shows the hybridity of the system. I try not to spend so much about that, just one thing more, because I think this theory is interesting and very curious, um, is the question, for example, of also how to deal with the insatisfaction and with the protests of the people. For example, uh, we know that at least from 1998 or 1997, with the new Iranian generation coming, uh, we started to have different waves of political demonstration, political protests, starting from the university, from the students in 99, then 2003, then of course the Green Movement 2009, and lastly 2017, 18, and 19, we have seen amazing protests. But what happened was that this kind of uh, hybridity gives to the regime, to the Islamic Republic system, uh, differently than the pure authoritarian systems such as China, North Korea, or Saudi Arabia, that they are completely uh, not flexible. Islamic Republic, be, having this kind of flexibility, gives them the possibility to change the political offer. For example, they do uh, in 1997, Let's do one example. We had the first wave of the new Iranian post-revolutionary uh, generation. No? Um, millions of Iranians, they turned to be 18, I remember, because I was also there. So they, they, they were, before 97, you could have across the streets. But after 97, you had problem because hundreds of thousands of young people, they get their driving license and basically they were just coming very fast. So, I mean, it was a turning point. If you had, if you make a calculation between 1979 by the Iranian revolution and 1997 is 18 years. So the new generation come. 
the Islamic Republic, Wahid system, was extremely able, for example, to present a person who was more reformist like Muhammad Khatami, who became a hero somehow for a couple of years of this new generation that, you remember, 20 million of people, they voted him because he started to speak a language of these people. So he started to attract them. Hmm? Then, of course, this high expectation has been frustrated after a couple of years. So, again, Khatami, because, or he, for different reasons, like, this is not the part to go to on that. But anyway, he didn't realize his promise, or he was not able, or he didn't want, however. So it had been created low expectation, frustration, and we have seen then the future election, Ahmadinejad rise, who is more conservative, more hardliners, less people are going to vote to him, and there was a frustration situation. In 2009, there was a belief again, Musavi comes, Karubi comes, so they start to speak about the reformists, even though if we see the real reformists, they are not really reformists, but however, they, they collocate themselves in the reformist area like Musavi and Karubi, who are actually very close to Ayatollah Khomeini, so they are the most Khomeinist one, actually, most conservative. However, in that moment, they play the role of the reformists, and again, people, they go and they vote, you remember, and then, of course, there is a problem of the vote calculation and the challenge that millions of people come to the street and the green movement. Again, people get frustrated, but the system, after four, five, eight years of uh, conservative and more pressure, it offers in 2017 another candidate, which is playing a pragmatist, not a reformist, playing a pragmatist part, Rouhani, opening to the West, then the nuclear deal. And again, a part of the society gets involved. And you remember, they to vote 18 million, 20 million, they vote to Rouhani. So if you see, the Islamic Republic is able to play also with a huge amount of the society by this hybridity, who are maybe against the Islamic Republic or very critical or very challenging that, but by this system, at least in the last 20 years, we could say, this hybrid system managed to play. And this is something we really highlight and we explain more, but I don't spend more time about that because we might go to the third part, which is also very important. So I try to just keep another three or four minutes and then I will open the floor for five minutes maybe. Okay, the third part is uh, uh, in, of the book regarding the domestic affairs of Iran, but particularly we try to focus on two important elements, mostly on the civil society. One is the role of the youth, of this new amazing and interesting generation, which is at the moment there are not one generation, there are generations. So we have between uh, 16 till under 40, so 16 till 40, this young and a bit less young. I mean, this great complex. However, these are the generation who came after the revolution, the post-revolutionary generation. So we, according to our studying, which came out with a part of this youth, they are very critical of the role of political Islam. They are very critical of the intervention of Islamic ideology into the private life. And we have seen the rise of a, of a, of a sort of secularism and a nationalism. Uh, a nationalism which is mostly, of course, acting as a critic into the elite dominant power of the Islamic Republic. And uh, so that's why we, 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 we devoted in this book one section, calling that the Iranian Renaissance. 
So trying to underline and to highlight how there is a amazing capital, social capital in Iran, which actually not so much they get voices. We see them in the street. They, 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 they give many slogans. They critic the Islamic intervention in the public and private life but not really are in the center of the attention. Maybe because they are too young, so they do not have many political leaders as representing themselves. And of course, the political leaders who have a voice inside of the Islamic Republic, and they are a bit in the opposition, they are mostly coming from the reformist area or pragmatist area. And those voices, actually they are the original Khomeinist ones. So they are connected to the Ayatollah Khomeini, if you see Musavi, or Rouhani himself, or Khatami himself, on the 80s, you see that those guys, they were the right or the left hand of Ayatollah Khomeini. So basically, they are not able to present this new generation. Uh, we have been analyzing also the sort of the revival of nationalism and secularism between those guys, a kind of coming back of this, in this uh, working on the symbolic source of power of the pre-Islamic Iran. For example, in the last 20 years, we see many of these youth trying to give a rebirth of their Persian identity or Iranian pre-Islamic identity, maybe it's better as a word, uh, on the Cyrus the Great, Tom on one hand, uh, on the other hand, uh, Ferdowsi as one of the important uh, Iranian uh, poets, uh, or the national figures or heroic figures like Kaveh or others. So this kind of identity is amazingly interesting and is not used only as, as a cultural level. It has been used, and it is used, we have seen in the last, particularly 2017 and 2019, using of this kind of uh, gathering. For example, I think the first one was 2016 that people, this youth, they went in front of the Cyrus uh, tomb and then there they started to give slogans, political slogans, criticizing the political Islam. So that is very interesting for our book and we work on that. Uh, we also, within this scheme, worked also on the oppositional forces. We gave, one part is a bit boring, to be honest, we make a description of the opposition forces like this, but I mean, I have, we had to do that. But the part which was very interesting in our research was that we noticed that there is a so-called, that we called it a velvet opposition. Uh, it was di very difficult to define them, uh, that we noticed that there is a group of intellectual, journalists, uh, also scholars, and uh, that they are not in Iran. Uh, most of them, they came in the last 20 or 30 years, particularly 20 years from Iran. So they were, they spent the first 20 years of the Islamic Republic in Iran. So basically they are connected in some part of the reformist or pragmatist part. And the last 20 years they came abroad and what they did, according to our work, is that they basically created a sort of protection area for the Islamic Republic. So they played the opposition but somehow they always try to guarantee a safety area and security area for the Islamic Republic. So we call them, I mean, we also had some kind of debate with the referees because we tried to call them velvet opposition. So somehow they are opposition, but they try to protect somehow the integrity of the Islamic Republic. So they say always, for example, yeah, it's very important to keep the Islamic Republic, otherwise Iran will not be united or there will be some fragmentation inside or sectarianism. Normally they like to speak about the sectarianism. So basically we notice the presence of this kind of 
opposition and uh, which which was interesting last but not the least is the foreign policy of course on the foreign policy we focus mostly on the role of iran in the middle east and also the relationship between Islamic republic and the global powers particularly of course uh, with china russia and united states so uh, the role of iran within this system for our book in the last chapter is really important we try also to argue that how uh, after 2016 and 2017 by the arrival of donald trump in washington there has been a paradigm change and this has been and it is still influencing very much the domestic affairs of the Islamic Republic and also its relationship with China in the book is very highlighted and how the Tehran today, the Islamic Republic, is uh, very much affiliated according to our work to China. And this is another very interesting part where Tehran stands in the great, uh, not anymore so much Cold War between Washington and Beijing. However, maybe the last part of foreign policy, which might be interesting for you, is the, 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 the idea and the, the theory that the, 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 the Iran's role as a leader of the Shia coalition, starting particularly from 2003, by the fall of Saddam Hussein, and of course afterwards with the civil wars in the Middle East, so which made Iran a leadership in the coalition, has been analyzed how Islamic Republic used also is a source of power of the Shia to become a great leader of the so-called Shia coalition, arriving also even in, in direct way until Yemen, passing to the Mediterranean by Syria and Lebanon arrived. So this amazing, and Iraq of course, as a, this amazing rise, which we calculate between 2003 and 2017. So this 15 years which brought Iran to become the head of the uh, so-called Shia coalition, or Shia Triangle for some scholars who said, um, we try to work on that and explain that. And of course, in the end, but as the book just came in 2020, we have the possibility also to say that according to our book, after 2017, by changing which is happening, uh, since 2018, we see a decline now. So we see a decline of the Islamic Republic as a leader of the Shia coalition and starting of the fragmentation of the Shia coalition. Uh, and this is very, very challenging and opening different debates, which in the book we touch some parts, but it will be also a source of the future work because it's just ongoing how you know this part is going down. So I think um, I, I've been talking a bit too much also, so but uh, I just needed and was enthusiastic to share with you. This, these are the most important part, but that there are of course different things we could discuss. Uh, I really thank for your patience and attention, and I. Open now, I, I mean, I got back to the Bonche and thanks her for, for the support, please. I'll mute myself. Thank you very much for walking us uh, through the main signposts of your fascinating book. Um, we'll now turn to the Q&A segment. Um, we have a, a few questions lined up. Um, so I'll be begin with the first one. You say that there is fierce competition and campaigning for candidates spearheaded by young people. But in the 2020 parliamentary elections, we saw protests from young people in the form of not engaging in the election. Has this year seen a shift in political culture away from the hybrid model? In other words, uh, the lower turnout in the parliamentary elections, how, has that, um, how does that impinge on this hybrid model? Okay, thank you very much, Josh, for this uh, 
A very interesting question. Yes, exactly. Actually, in our theory of hybrid regime, we really specify that this is much, much showing itself on the presidential elections. Parliamentary elections actually are a bit different, and they are not so much showing themselves. And what you say about 2020 is completely right, also because what happened is that, and you, and that in the, uh, let's say, uh, frustration, expectation, frustration system that it creates the, the hybrid regime, at a certain point, we argue that it might not work anymore. So it looks that now the society, after, if you consider Khatami until the second Rouhani, so many up and down, hybrid regime playing, getting a bit to the, towards society, then getting back. It looks that now, uh, with 2020, what happened and 2019 protests, don't forget about the importance of 2019 uh, protests on November. So it shows that the society is very much logorated at the moment. So uh, this might really create uh, what is a disaffection, and this is one of the risks for the Islamic Republic hybrid regime. We show in the book that at a certain point, if you create too much expectation, the system at the moment, at, at, at one point, cannot anymore answer. So maybe we are close to that. Thank you, Thank you Peshman. Um, I'll now move on to the next question. And this question is from Roger Higginson. And he says that he's happy to concur with the characterization of the current regime as being a hybrid, but wonders if the past century um, is really a struggle between the forces of modernization and those of tradition. Um, perhaps we can add another line. Um, how do external factors or extrinsic forces, how do they um, impinge on these uh, social and, and political blockages? Well, thank you very much. Also, that's a very interesting uh, question. Yes, I mean, when we started to work, uh, we were a bit, you know, the thing which gave us, actually one colleague gave us the idea of the modernization and tradition to work it in a better way uh, under 100 years of Iran. Because, for example, we noticed one thing about Ayatollah Khomeini's policy in the, during the revolution. So what we noticed, of course, Khomeini's idea were conservative and traditionalist. If you go to read his Islamic government or Belayat al-Faqi, or uh, even though he was a minority in, in its own Shia scholarship, because he was for intervention of the clergy. However, his mindset and his thought was a conservative and traditionalist. We cannot say that he was a progressive. Also within the Shia system. But what he did, for example, he was using modern instruments. You remember how he was making propaganda by using cassettes. He was using networks. So he was making his speech in the cassette, then his Islamic network in Iran, they were spreading the cassettes, which is sort of Twitter today or Facebook today or like that. I mean, he would have been able to use uh, modern sites, but to bring ahead traditional thought or also conservative thought or sometimes radical thought. Think about ISIS, for example, or think about Al-Qaeda, or particularly ISIS, how they do use modern instruments to bring archaic and radical ideas. So uh, this gave us the idea that it's very interesting to work on those parts who are bringing in the 100 years of Iran force of the modern and the other tradition. For example, in the Mashrute or constitutional revolution, we see that clearly we have uh, forces of modernization. At that time, they are mostly intellectuals, also part of the 
at that time Bazaria and clergy, even though then they turned to become against that. But in the beginning, they are within the forces of modernization. But then again, you will have the forces of tradition, for example, Sheikh Fazlullah, Nuri, or others that they try to contrast. So this kind of you know, clash is very interesting. And then you have Reza Shah. Definitely Reza Shah is one of the most important forces of the modernization in Iran. Even though he has political, uh, he will not bring political modernization, but he brings cultural modernization. He brings um, also a, a sort of economic infrastructure modernization. So what we did, we also divided the aspect of cultural modernization, political modernization, which is mostly based on pluralism, for example, which, for example, Reza Shah doesn't have, but he has cultural modernization. He pushed on secularism. He pushed on the infrastructural part. So, so we try to divide, you know, and not to fall to the idea that this guy is good, the other guy is bad. Trying to be on the objective to see what part of modernization they accomplished and what part they didn't. Thank you. Thanks, Pejman. Um, Roger also wanted to add to that question, um, wanted to complicate it a little bit. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll ask the question, or I'll try to rephrase it. But he asks, um, might we complicate uh, this um, sort of dichotomy that you speak of, this hybrid, by considering um, that the main currents are, can be characterized really as those that want to make Iran self-sufficient self or toshtanas, and those who are more open to international cooperation and engagement and dialogue. Could it be that kind of um, dichotomy instead? Uh, I think that also could be within, uh, I, I wouldn't turn totally to that, but I think that could be one part of the dichotomy. So that could be also, for example, in the foreign policy, uh, you see a part of the, for example, Reza Shah, who works very much on the nationalism, but then, uh, but, but then you could see the Islamic Republic, which works very much of the so-called of Islamism. So there are differences on that. Um, yes and no. no. I mean, I agree partially, but inside of our scheme, which we made cultural uh, modernization, political modernization, and economic modernization, uh, this could work a bit, but I wouldn't put it like that. But I understand what you say and I respect it. We could maybe later on to discuss. Thank you, Bejman. Uh, another question is by Abdul Rahman Heydari. And his question is, based on your research and your analysis, what are the main weaknesses that you identify when it comes to this hybrid system? Um, perhaps you could, we can add to that by asking, um, what kind of impediments does this sort of um, this structure have to Iran's development and reintegration? Hey, thank you very much. Also, this is a very interesting question. Well, basically, uh, there are impediments. Uh, one is the last one that I underlined. Maybe you, I said it after that you, you made the question. I, I mean, one of the impediments is that it creates high expectations then it frustrates that. It again creates, then it frustrates that. So what we argue is that this going up and down, as also human psychology happened to everybody, it has, a, it has a limit. So at a certain point, the society doesn't answer anymore. And it looks that Iranian society at the moment is very close, or if it's not arrived already, reached 
to that limit. That at that point, you don't believe anymore. So uh, now it's very difficult for the next presidential elections to have a candidate coming from reformists, pragmatists, or conservative who will be really able again to bring people in the square to vote. Well, particularly after what happened in November 2019. In November 2019, for 12 days before the COVID lockdown, Iranians in Iran, they were locked down because for 12 days in November, 80 million Iranians, they didn't have access to internet and to WhatsApp particularly to speak with the world. So this was coming from the government, which was promising modernity opening from Rouhani. So I think that was the last part of the great frustration. So it's very difficult now. So this is one of the great impediments of the hybrid regime. At the certain point, at, at, at the same time, the hybrid regime offers platform for foreign policy, as I said, but also there, how much they are able to play. For example, now with Trump, they are not able to use the, the hybridity because from the other side, there is a radical closing. So they are not able to do. Maybe um, but if Biden wins, maybe they could use their hybridity in the foreign policy and try to do something, but it's very difficult. So I think it's very good, but for the short midterm, in the long term, we see the, the problem of frustration and expectation and the fact that the people, they don't believe anymore to the game. Great, thank you. Um, thank you. Question from Radhika Lakshminarayan. Do you see this hybrid model changing in the post-COVID era, particularly due to the backlash emerging out of the government's handling of the pandemic? Uh, could you repeat it? I didn't understand exactly. Do you see this hybrid model changing in the post-COVID era, uh, particularly due to the backlash from the public emerging out of what was seen as the government's mishandling of the pandemic? Does that have any effect on this hybrid? Does it shift it to one side or does it pivot or is it stable? I got it. Yeah, then I got it. I mean, definitely the mismanagement of post-COVID uh, or COVID time still we are inside. Definitely it's uh, enhancing and increasing the, 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 frag the fraction and the weakness of the hybridity. But what I see is that it has happened already before. I think November uh, disaster was the turning point of the change. Uh, even though uh, international media didn't work so much on November, what happened in Iran, but November, what happened, it put an amazing trace inside of the Iranians, much more than 2009, even probably more than 2017. The fact of closing 80 million citizens to the world, a pre-COVID lockdown, doing by the government of the Rouhani, not by a part of the Islamic. So this is... Uh, something that, in my interpretation, has been touching the top. So COVID just made it worse, but I don't think that COVID is one of the main varieties. Um, so this is a question from Ahlan. And Ahlan yep. asks that there was a program on the BBC called The Art of Persia, and this program showed the ambition of Iran to expand the Arab or the uh, Persian Gulf area. Is this the regime's ambition? Does it have expansionist um, motives? Um, or another way we can ask that is, what are the drivers behind Iran's foreign policy and its uh, regional activism? Well, uh, let's say that Islamic Republic of Iran uh, 
being based on the ideological framework since the beginning of political Islam, since the beginning of Ayatollah Khomeini, but it was not based on the Shia political Islam. Be careful. So since the beginning, uh, the Islamic revolution was very much similar to the, to the communist revolution in, 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 uh, in Russia. So the idea was based on the ideology. So since the beginning, the idea of the exportation uh, of the revolutionary uh, ideas like this, Palestine, uh, Arab countries of the Persian Gulf, all of this area, it has been a main focus for this system. And this is one of the reasons that there is a war with Iraq and the Arab supports of Saddam Hussein and so on. You know, this is one of the most important parts which happened. Disaster war between the two very important uh, players at that time and today of the Middle East. However, this changed after 2003 because as I mentioned before, yes, after 2003, by the fall of Saddam Hussein and the opening of the Shia part of Iraq to the Islamic Republic, Islamic Republic started to use, not focusing on the political Islam as a wide, but as a sectarian Shia political Islam, as a um, clearly resource of power, of penetration, which many people know. United States does that with Hollywood, Soviet Union was doing that with communists mm -hmm. uh, and like that. I mean, these are the use of symbolic source of power. So the symbolic source of power, as you use McDonald's or Hollywood, you could, you could use shrines of the Shia clergy and the Shia imams to get into. So this is the use of that. It's not the question of holy of religion. It's the use of religion as a political ideology, which is different than the holiness and the respect which is towards the people who are religious, which are two different things. So what happened? The Islamic Republic, yes, since 2003, they started. And of course, what Bush, Bush administration did really helped them. Uh, then Obama administration policy again helped them. Uh, and this from, from Washington policy helped the Islamic Republic to grow and to penetrate themselves. The so-called Arab Spring, the Syrian civil wars, open Syria, and of course, Lebanon already, this, the, the Hezbollah was an important ally. So yes, they started to have an important uh, opening, which is now, be careful, this is very important, now is going down. Now, according to our, let's uh, say, comments and analysis, now there is a decline of that. Also because, and this is maybe not very close to your question, but helps us to open, because the, the leader of the Shia coalition, which is the Islamic Republic, is facing domestically problem of legitimization of this policy you know better than me that many of these youth in the square since 2009 but particularly 2017 2018 and 19 they were clearly saying different kind of slogans for example so they don't want Gaza, they don't want lebanon only iran why because they are against the policy of the Islamic Republic on promoting Hamas, promoting Hezbollah, or promoting at the moment Hashtu Shabi too. So the Islamic Republic doesn't have the domestic support, at least the majority. There is a minority, of course, we support. The majority, we support the leadership of the so-called expansionism based on uh, Shia. So what I say, yes, Islamic Republic has been trying to do that and if at the moment they don't have the, the, the strength to do that, but they do not face a domestic support from the population. So I don't think that is going to be continuous.
Thanks, Pejam. That um, is a very good segue into the next question. I think you anticipated the next question. This question is by Mahtab Garzin, and her questions are, what are your thoughts on the use of nationalism and national pride by the government to unite the public behind the regime, even those who oppose the republic? For example, after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. Well, that's, that's, that's a very important question. Of course, the Islamic Republic particularly in the last, I would say, starting by Ahmadinejad's time, particularly, uh, they started part of the Islamic Republic, and this is going to touch the hybridity of the regime. So it gives them the possibility in the domestic policy also to use a sort of Islamic nationalism. So this sort of putting together, we have seen that in Ahmadinejad's legacy, particularly with the guy Mashai, who was his vice president, that he started to speak about uh, the Iranian maktab irani uh, the idea that there is an Iranian nationalism to bring it back. So they, they started to use that. And afterwards, uh, the Supreme Guide, before getting to Soleimani, the Supreme Guide, Ayatollah Khamenei, for at least two times during, before the uh, presidential elections, he underlined that even though you are a critic of the Islamic Republic, even though you do not accept us, for the Iranian nationalists, come and vote. So, and then of course, uh, Soleimani became one of the most important uh, figures that the Islamic Republic invested on that as a national hero. The, the, the bad luck, we could say, of Soleimani's case was that he has been assassinated a couple of weeks after the court from, from which he was coming from, it means the Pastoral. I don't say Soleimani himself because I don't have any. But the place from which he was coming was responsible of the killing of at least 1,500 Iranians in the street. So that was the bad luck of Soleimani because if Soleimani would have been assassinated one year before, maybe the wave of nationalism of Iranians could have been much closer to Soleimani's case. But as he has been assassinated a couple of weeks after Pastaran, from where he was one of the leaders, where one of the co-responsible of the killing Iranians in the street, so this didn't really give that boost of nationalism. Of course, also the terrible mistake of, uh, of the air, uh, Ukrainian air also very much you know, influenced that. So yes, Soleimani and other part of the Islamic Republic, they try to use also nationalism. For example, the idea they oh, be careful. Uh, maybe Iran will be fragmented. Maybe uh, we will lose. It's still that we are here, we keep the national unity. So they use this kind of rhetoric. Also the so-called opposition, velvet opposition, as I said, they use it very much. But I think what I see in the streets, what I see in the, between the civil society, it looks that it works much less. So I see a nationalist which is much closer to idea of the secularist rather than the Islamic nationalist. But this exists and they, and they play with that. Thank you. Um, so we have a question from Handy and our question is, is there po any possibility that the relative flexibility of the political system might gradually leak into the rigidity of the normative framework and lead to, for example, flexibility in the strict normative um, norms and values. Um, or we can also, I can also add to that by, by saying how, um, how dynamic has a system showed that it can be, or is it just monolithic 
Um, does it shift away from its strategic preferences and its national narrative or its military doctrine? Does it show flexibility and, and how, how, can, how can we see that? How do we see that? Uh, well, thank you. That's also another uh, very relevant question. Uh, I think that the normative part and the ideological part is not touchable. The Islamic Republic has showed that the extreme flexibility are within the so-called, as I said, policies. Mm -hmm. They're not going to touch their ideological framework because they know, uh, and Islamic Republic elite knows, particularly Ayatollah Khamenei and the elite, they know if they touch that, they will fall. So uh, their red line is their uh, normative ideological framework, which is very much expressed, for example, with the judiciary power. No? So whenever it is to use of judiciary forces to put sanctions, to, to put to the jail, no? to condemn people. Now we have these three guys of the November, these three protest protesters condemned to death. So the use of the normative is not only the use of normative, he used the normative as a political pressure. But this doesn't do only the Islamic Republic. You see it with many, is, we speak about the Islam, political Islam, but we could speak about also other things. But within the political Islam framework, you have seen it with Boko Haram, with the, um, with the Sudan system, with the Afghanistan system. The po radical political Islam, the first thing they do when they get the power, they use the judiciary forces. Because the judiciary forces, the normative part, creates a political pressure. It happened also in Bahrain. On the other side, you remember how in the Arab Spring, many Bahrainian they made a revolt against the Bahrain Kingdom, and four or five of them they were very very fast condemned to death and the death penalty. So the use of judiciary forces is a great instrument for the systems which which use political Islam. Very interesting. Um, question from Danny Postel. Regarding your view that Iran's leadership or dominant role in the regional Shia bloc is in decline, can you explain this a bit? And what is leading to this decline, in your opinion? Well, uh, yes, this is a really, if you see our book, this is the last part we touch, and we are working on that. Uh, in particularly contradiction and critic of what uh, my colleague Valinas wrote in 2006 or seven about the rise of the Shia Triangle. According to our uh, theory, uh, this Shia triangle, so-called Shia coalition, is in decline and is not any more um, robust. Um, the main reasons, as I said, is that they, on one hand, the leader of this triangle or, or this coalition has an internal legitimacy about the use of political Islam. So it's very difficult to have a system which inside most of their own people, they are against the use of political Islam to be a leader of a great coalition which is based on ideological sources of power. This is the first one. The second question uh, is that also people from Iraq, Lebanon, we have seen these two important parts. In the last two years, we have seen that they have drivers to come out and protest against uh, the role of Islamic Republic to get into their own uh, domestic affairs. So they ask for more transparency of their governments, they want to have less corruption, and they do not uh, accept anymore a sort of patronage coming from the Islamic Republic. This is the second reason. The third reason is 
that within the paradigm shift which is coming uh, and the sanctions coming from Washington towards Tehran, the economic situation of the Islamic Republic is extremely fragile. So as economic forces, Islamic Republic, if does not, something strange doesn't happen, or something very radical doesn't happen, is not able to, be, to, 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 to continue to maintain its leadership because it costs, leadership costs. So you should pay to Hezbollah, you should pay the, the, for, the so-called 4H, so the Hashto Shabi, Hezbollah, Haramiyun, who are in the Syria, and the Houthis, even the Houthi, we don't have documents to say that there is direct financing. However, to support the unit money for them. So for doing that, uh, at the moment you have Islamic Republic with the economic problem, ideological legitimacy problem, and on the other hand, Iraq and Lebanon, which are asking for a more, let's say, citizenship idea, which is based on the new functional nationalism, which criticized the use of political Islam. And least, last but not least, I repeat it, this, the civil society or the society, particularly the youth, that they are asking from the Islamic Republic not to interfere in Iraq, in Lebanon, in, uh, in Yemen, and like that. And this is very interesting because uh, you, have, uh, <laughs> you have a similar, you have a similar uh, request, both from Iraqi and from Iranians at the moment, but with different reasons but they ask from the same thing. So that's something that it needs to be worked on that. Thanks for your question, and we could really work on that in the next years. Next question is from Nicholas Pelham. He thanks you for this very illuminating talk. And his question is, would the Islamic Republic's decline that you've described have happened if Trump had continued Obama's policy and upheld the nuclear deal? And if not, could a Biden victory help revive the Islamic Republic and the efficacy of its hybrid model at home and abroad? So we're looking towards the future. Oh, thank you very much, Nicolas. Wonderful. He has been also amazing for the review of the book. And thank, thank you for this very nice uh, and outgoing question. I think, yes, I agree with you. The Islamic Republic, by its own complex, but at the same time subtle, hybridity, because let me underline that Islamic Republic is much more subtle and complex than, for example, the Shah's monarchy before. So it has, it has been done an amazing and formidable work for its own survival. So if Obama uh, would have been another four years in Washington, or if Trump, as you said, would have continued or someone the Obama's policy towards Iran, I think, yes, the Islamic Republic would have been on the wave of his hybridity, get involved into the, the, the world's economy, into the, 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 as it was happening, you know, all 2015, 16, the, the enterprises from Europe, I know because in Italy I was in many consultancy, but not only Italy, from UK, from Germany, they were all going to Iran, the France, the economy was opening, and this would have been bring probably to a more modernized Islamic Republic on the economic and maybe even on the political way, but it wouldn't modernize on the cultural way. So you wouldn't have a secularist, definitely, but you would have had a, a more functional economic system and probably a more flexible political system, yes. So I think that one of the reasons 
that this has happened is the paradigm shift coming from Washington. This is not something to underestimate. And yes, I again agree with you in case is very important. November 3rd is very important for the domestic affair of Islamic Republic because if Biden will win, in that case, there are rooms of the so-called still the last chance, let's say, of the revival of the Islamic Republic. I think there is chance. But if Trump will win, I think there is no chance anymore. Great, thank you. A question from Khalid al Khateb, and this kind of relates, um, I guess, to the previous question. Um, do you agree with pressure works on changing Iran? In the words of Brian Hook, the State Department's uh, special envoy to Iran. Well, this is, you know, this is this is a very difficult question to answer. I try to give you what I see as an analyst in this case, because it's a very difficult question. Because on one hand, um, if Obama's policy, like opening, you know, bringing Tehran, bringing Islamic Republic into the system, if, as I said, it would have been continued, I think Islamic Republic would have been playing that, and you would have got a sort of uh, still semi-authoritarian system, but which was trying to dialogue and like this. So the Obama's policy would have been, so without pressure, bringing out the sanction, would have gave oxygen to Islamic Republic, you would have got a more moderate economic system, a bit more open to tourists, but of course you still would have got the, 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 the structural authoritarian part. So this, this is what we want, yes, it, it would have been made more soft, softer a bit and make you know, more interaction. The full pressure which is coming from Trump, the result is to create polarization. And we are seeing that. So economic unrest in Iran are growing. From 2017 to 2019, the last unrest, they are mostly economic motivated. Uh, also, there is, as I said, a cultural motivation, foreign policy motivation. But as you see, the, the, the sources are mostly economic. Before, they were mostly cultural students, you know, middle class. Now, after the sanctions, you have mostly the so-called mustazafin, let me say that because I think also is interesting for Ponchetis and for other Iranian experts. So the idea of mustazafin, the idea of the disheritance, the people who from the beginning the revolution was working on them, the Khomeinism, now you have the opposite effect because the sanctions made a big pressure on the working class and of the poor of Iran, which are amazing, there are very many, and many of them, they come to the street. Normally, they were belonging to the traditional part who were supporting the Islamic Republic. But these sanctions doesn't give them any more room to support. They are hungry, they want bread, they come to the street. And on the other hand, you have the phenomenon, uh, let me say that because I think it's interesting, uh, the so-called Aghazadeh in Persian, in Farsi, which means the, the sons of the elite of the Islamic Republic. What happened? The Islamic Republic, the, the Khomeini's thought, which was based on bringing the poors to be inside and to have a role, now the, the result is that there is a new elite and the sons or the daughters of these new elites who are between 30 and 40 years, they do come to London or they go to other uh, European or Western countries and they only pay 20,000 pounds to change the, the, the targ of their Lamborghini, to put the name, for example, Ya Ali or Ya Hussein, to their targ of the car of the Lamborghini. So this is what is the outcome. 
So you don't have any more the poors who see the Islamic Republic as their protectors because the sons of those elite is like a, if you see the Orwell factory of animals because the sons of those guys, they have Lamborghinis in London and they pay 20,000 just to put the name of one Imam of Shia in the, in the, the numbers of their car. So there is a great contradiction and this has been created what is now. So yes, I think the sanctions Unfortunately, they are affecting because they are bringing the more poor in the street, but it doesn't mean that they are good because people are suffering. So there is a great suffering. Iranians are in an amazing suffering situation and they are blocked between a Washington pressure and on the other hand, their own system pressing them. So they are, in, they are a kind of under a big pressure. So I don't know what is the answer, but this is what I see, the differences of the approach. Yeah, it seems that they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And yeah, the lines are becoming blurry. Um, question from uh, Jasmine in Bahrain. Do you think Iran's foreign policy is ideologically based? So a nuclear or a non-nuclear deal won't change the country's external behavior? Well, uh, the Islamic Republic's foreign policy is mostly based on ideology, but it's not only based on ideology. Islamic Republic is also a rational player. So that's important to underline. In a moment that there is a rationality, Islamic Republic has been showing to be rational. For example, in the case of Afghanistan crisis, how Iran collaborated with the United States, even under the shadow, or in many other situations. So it's not that Islamic Republic is all based on ideology. Islamic Republic use ideology for its own rational choices, it's different. So the ideology in the moment which is used, is used for its own rational choices. In my opinion, neither Islamic Republic, neither uh, the Shah, and probably the, in the future, whatever will be, um, Iran never had as a state ambition to invade his neighbors and to threat the, 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 his neighbors and the Persian Gulf. This is not with the Islamic Republic, not before by the Shah, not in the after. So as a complex idea. So this kind of ambition is not there. The idea of Iran anyway has been always to harmonizing. In case of Islamic Republic, there is this case of political Islam that they use that on their own behalf. Great, thank you. Question from Andrea Baldi. What about the next uh, relationship between Iran and Hezbollah? What will be the next, what will the next phase look like? In particular, regarding the complicated situation that Lebanon is facing today with its political regime in trouble. Well, that's one of the key points that we face in the next 10 years. We are really getting with the 2020, uh, which started with the killing of uh, General Soleimani, which has been an amazing and difficult, and terrible situation, as you have seen. And this was related to what, what you're asking. So there is, uh, it's all related. So if, if, if Islamic Republic managed to get back to the track, so economic system, which depends very much, uh, let me say, to if Biden will win or Trump will win. That's very important related to that. But if the Islamic Republic will get back to the track and uh, will again, you know, have money situation, better situation, I think again with Hezbollah and this Shia coalition might get a bit stronger, even though it's very difficult that from their side, they do accept. I mean, Lebanese citizens, I don't speak about the, uh, the, the Hezbollah, because what happened? That the Lebanese citizen, and, and this is very important word what I'm saying, and Iraqi citizens, that they have been using 
to understand themselves as a sectarian system, as a sectarian nation, because as you know better than me, Iraq and Lebanon are one of the first artificial state coming after site because so they paid this price. But now it seems that after many moments of illusions, they have seen uh, that not only the so-called seculars, they are corrupted. They have sure. seen that also the political Islamists are corrupted because they have seen uh, how the Shia elite who under Saddam Hussein in Iraq, I see, I see. They were in the minority, not minority, they were under repression. So when you are under repression, you say, yes, when I get power, it's politics, no, left, right, the same. I will do this, I will do that. Once they get the power, they have seen since Al-Maliki till today, that how also these people who are saying that they are political Islamists, in this case Shia, they didn't bring transparency. If you go to see Iraqi system, it's full of corruption. So there is also a kind of frustration. The same thing with Hezbollah. Until Hezbollah was a movement, this is one of the base of so political sociology. When you are a movement, everybody is good. But when you get into the institution, when you get into the politics, when you get into the executive system, as it happened with Hezbollah, and you're not able to guarantee the, what you promised, and particularly you, you're not able to go against corruption and against this malfunctioning, so the people, they start to be tired of that. So what happened is that many political Islamist forces, in this case, we speak about Shia, but the same happened with Sunni, in, with Morsi, with Muslim Brotherhood, but I don't want to open that now. Once they get the power and they show that they are inefficient like the others and they are not able to bring what they said, the justice, the equality, which are the base of political Islam. No? Political Islam is based on justice and equality, not on freedom. Justice and equality is the most important thing. But when they didn't guarantee that, so they lost an important consensus. So this is another thing that we are facing into the political Islam. And the people, what they're asking, Iraqi and Lebanese, they, want, they don't want secularism in the, in the way that the Iranian they're asking. They want a new nationalism which is functional and they want to have a transparent and non-corrupted system. That's why I see that Hezbollah's consensus is declining too. Hello again. Um, it seems that we continue to have problems getting Pejman back. So I'm just going to wrap up the discussion. Um, what I can say myself as an, an Iran scholar is that we need more and more scholarship on Iran because Iran is becoming, has become or is center stage um, in the geopolitical landscape um, in the Middle East. And with the mounting pressures of maximum, the maximum pressure campaign, uh, the possibility of snapback, the dispute, dispute resolution mechanism um, in the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, um, there is a potential of more and more pressure mounting on Iran. Um, this, of course, uh, you know, brings in other players, for example, China and, for example, Russia. How will they react? Will they veto any sort of resolution, any snapback mechanism? From what we've seen, um, Iran does have some allies. Um, I would, I, I, my own research, have called Russia a strategic partner. I would call China more of an economic partner. Um, and what we see is um, some sort of uh, solidarity when it comes to 
propping up Iran. Um, and they have declared that they will veto the SNAP Act. So what we have is the potential for any sort of direction when it comes to Iranian politics. Um, it remains to be seen what will happen with the American elections. Um, we have definitely a hardline conservative wave in Iran, as Pejman mentioned, with a uh, dominant uh, conservative parliament. So we um, will be sitting back and uh, we'll be watching um, and see how these factors merge and whether or not Iran will be able to reintegrate into the international community and how its partners will be able to support it and also whether other countries of the EU, the European states, will they be able to, um, you know, will they be able to implement other mechanisms that they've promised Iran, like the special payment vehicle? How um, will these external factors, external players, how will they um, play out? Um, how will they change this shifting landscape? So thank you so much for all of your fascinating questions. They've all been very thought provoking. Uh, apologies for um, these technical problems we've had with Pejmon. Um, some fascinating questions here, but um, I will say good goodbye and also encourage you to take a look at his book. Thank you very much.